Okay. Hello, everyone. I was waiting a little bit for everybody to get in here. There we go. Um, welcome to another live at Kaiju Vision. Uh, I hope all of you can hear me. Let me know if you can't. Uh, this should all be working just fine. It took a little bit of extra time to uh, get the audio, make sure the audio is all set up. And so we're going to talk about some things. Uh, I have not been here in a while. Uh, it's been a while. And, uh, and, and now we're going to do a, a Q&A session. And it's going to be really interesting. I received some incredibly good, incredibly good questions. Um, it's good to see you all. Good evening to the North American audience and in Europe. Good night. And if you're in the Japanese audience, good morning. And I got some detailed questions for this. And I think that the answers to these are going to be sometimes difficult to talk about. But I think they're very good questions. And I think they're very good things to ponder. And I think they're perfect questions for this podcast, too. They're really perfect. And it's going to be fun. I, the, I had to end up writing them down, uh, writing the, my answers down, because the answers are so detailed, and I wanted to make sure that I got it right. So forgive me if I uh, forgot about you know, being able to look at the camera here with all this stuff that I wrote down, because I have about 10 pages of pre-written material. I don't know if you know this, but um, every episode of Kaiju Vision at least since episode 37, the Shin Godzilla episode, I think every episode since then has been strictly pre-written. And every podcast episode, all the way up through episode 56, they were all pre-written, all, all thought out, and nothing was ever off the cuff. And it, sometimes off the cuff stuff is good, but if, when you get into this much detail and when you take deep dives into these movies like kind of vision does there are uh, it's there are many good reasons for wanting to write all this stuff down um so hi hi zach and hi dave good to see you um i think i will start with a uh, sort of warm-up question um one is where have you been and uh, I had to take some time off. It's been a difficult year for me and my family. And I know that that's going around a lot this year. And uh, there's not really a good solution to it sometimes other than to take some time off, collect yourself, and um, move on from there. I from my, my experience this year so far, it went from bad to I can't believe this. And as a result, I took some time off. And uh, I actually know a couple other people on YouTube that I watch who, who took this time for that, too. And so I think that's it's good to to try to do that when you need to, rather than try to keep to something when your mind just and your emotions just aren't in it. And I don't want to, I don't want to fake things 
on this show. So I didn't want to come on and fake like I'm doing okay because I wasn't. Uh, it's been a tough year for a lot of people. That That's definitely without a question. And um, I'm sure everybody's seen how that's been going. But yeah, that's that's the reason. And I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to pretend. So I received some amazingly good questions and they made me rethink, no, not rethink, but they made me think again about things that I've said and perspectives I've taken and things that I've talked about with fans of the show and with listeners, because uh, we, I end up having some really great conversations in uh, DMs and in uh, other messages and emails and everything like that. And I am, I really appreciate the conversation. And those of you who have talked to me during this time, I really am glad that, that you've done that, that you've done that. And I hope that what we've said in conversation, I hope that that uh, has helped you too. You, you guys have definitely helped me a lot. One question that I'm going to start with, though, um, is related to, well, which one should I do first? Oh, here we go. I'll start with an Article 9 question. And uh, Article 9 is, of course, the article of the Constitution in Japan that says that Japan should not have any uh, offensive military capability and uh, not use military solutions to uh, solve problems. And that is pretty amazing. But, oh, I, hang on. I wanted to address something in the chat, too, though. Um, Dave, you asked, can Godzilla get COVID? Um, I have actually seen a couple of people mention that and suggest even that there should be a Godzilla movie made where Godzilla is like symbolic of the coronavirus. And I don't know about you, but it sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> um, I, first of all, I don't know if anybody wants to remember any of, the, of this year at all, if, unless under duress. But uh, on top of that, I, I can't imagine a crowd of Japanese people saying, oh no, Godzilla is coming, but he's microscopic and he can get anybody. So everybody should just stay home. It would be like a reverse evacuation, you know, like everybody's out in the streets and then they all just run home instead of running out of town. That'd be pretty ridiculous, but um, maybe somebody else has a better way to work that analogy and to work that symbolism. But I just... Uh, don't know how that's going to work, but it's like, I, I can't, I just keep thinking of Godzilla's coming. Everybody stay inside where you are. Everybody's shelter in place. And that's just a <laughs> funny idea. And I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. I, I hope that there are plenty of things more in the news that uh, we can relate Godzilla to, but there is definitely also the issue of uh, like when, when somebody posts something, like in real life that happened. And then they're like, Oh, it's just like Godzilla. And, and that's like, it's pretty cringy sometimes because it's like, Oh God, you have to shoehorn Godzilla and everything. But uh, at the same time, kind vision isn't about that. Kind vision is about connecting the real world, the real world to Godzilla. 
but it's never been about, oh, this is Godzilla or, you know, making that kind of connection. That is pretty cringy. So only Zaxxas, only social distancing can save us from the radiation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just stay socially distanced and the radiation will, you know, jump over to you. Um, so I'll start with this article nine question because it's a good one. Um, and the question is, is there any support in Japan for getting rid of article nine? And um, that's a great question. Since Kaiju Vision began in 2017, the, the plan has always been, Abe's plan has always been to hold a referendum in Japan and then pass the measure through both houses of the diet. And then that will result in article nine being changed, which it would end up that the self-defense forces would be codified in the constitution. So it's largely symbolic, but it is still a big deal. But most of the post-war restraints on the, on the SDF, they, a lot of them have been lifted anyway. At this point, the, the 2014 reinterpretation of article nine to allow um, the, the SDF to defend the United States should they get into a conflict in East Asia, that was extremely important and that didn't require a referendum. And it, and so it was, it went around the referendum process, but this would actually be the uh, referendum and it was planned for 2020. I'm not sure if they're still going to even do this because the polls do not look good for uh, getting rid of article nine. Uh, the last polls I saw were that 70% of the Japanese public wants Article 9 left alone. That is a lot. And 60% of Abe supporters want it to be left alone. So Abe isn't getting the support even within his own party that he needs at this point to, to get the referendum through. So he can either start the referendum now and do it and lose, up, you know, just do an up or down vote and lose, or uh, he could just hold off on it because nothing really is pointing all you know to anything good in the in the referendum results. And I just don't think that the Japanese are really up to this right now. But that is where it looks at right now. And and the whole thing with you know Shin Godzilla and nationalism, 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 all that kind of like the Brady show with, you know, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And I think that anybody who's saying that there's, that Japan is somehow taking some kind of turn towards ultra nationalism or towards militarism or whatever. I don't see that. It's just not reflected in the terms or it's not reflected in the polls. And uh, that's a, it's a high bar to overcome to get two thirds of both houses in the diet and then on top of that, uh, get all of that through with the referendum. I, I don't see that happening. And it's always been my position that the Japanese should make that decision themselves. They should not be the ones, you know, we should not be the ones making that decision. Uh, even though I have an opinion on it, I'm not going to try to pressure anybody to agree with me because that is up to them. It's very important that it be up to them. And I'm not going to say, oh, they need to do this with their military or they need to do that. That, that isn't necessarily my purview because I'm not Japanese. I don't have a vote. I'm not a citizen. Uh, I can only call things as I see them from over here in America. But that's a, that's a fantastically good question. Um, 
Okay, so the next question is a sort of fandom-related question. And uh, this is something that I've talked about with people before, but then when it got asked to me, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I've really talked about this yet on this show. So I think I will now. Um, basically, the question was, how how is it that people on social media sometimes in the Godzilla community, how they say that they imply, especially imply, but they, they also just outright say that there are certain ways there, you know, that there are right and wrong ways to enjoy Godzilla, you know, and they, and that is a, a very difficult thing because I don't think there is a wrong way, but, uh, and, and just like I've said in the introductory episode to Kaiju vision that, uh, though I prefer to watch these movies with subtitles, does that mean that uh, everybody should in order to, to get the full experience or whatever? Not really, no, that doesn't really make much sense. But uh, as far as that, though, um, because Godzilla is such a diverse and long-lasting franchise of movies, for, I, I think, as a result the Godzilla movies and the franchise as a result, there are going to be a wide and diverse number of reasons why people like them because these movies have different target audiences, different target age groups. They have different focuses. They tell radically different stories from one to the next. And as a result, there are going to be people who uh, have their favorites and uh, I think some people look at that as a negative thing. And I, I don't get that at all. I think just because the, I, I think just it goes to follow that, uh, that Godzilla movies are very diverse and you're going to end up with not only a diverse following, but you're going to end up with a diverse number of reasons why people like them. I think that makes sense. Um, and so you, you get, end up with a diverse audience, which is also good. And for people who are unable to, to handle diversity or, or too many differences of opinion uh, and it makes them uncomfortable or what have you, and they get this sort of um, mental meltdown. And then they, they say only true Godzilla fans do this or do that or the other. And, uh, you know, I, I saw a YouTube video from someone uh, two years ago, I believe now. No, last year, last year. And uh, that person was saying, if you don't like Godzilla King of the Monsters, then you're not a real Godzilla fan. And I said it over and over and over. And um, that's not true <laughs> at all. And also, when, just look at yourself the way you do when you say that. It doesn't look good. <laughs> but uh, I think the insistence that also, that there's also the insistence that in order to be a true Godzilla fan, that you have to love all of the movies, I think that is really unrealistic and is possibly just, you know, posturing on their part. You say, oh, I love all of them. Really, though? I don't know about that. I, uh, I'm not really sure. And, and that's sort of where, you know, internet virtue signaling comes into my mind uh, because I definitely have my favorites, too. 
I, I say that in, in the episodes, uh, what I like and what I don't. And I knew that when I started the show, I was going to say what I like and what I don't, because that's, that's personal preference. You know, what are you going to do? Sue me because I don't like, uh, certain aspects of Godzilla versus Biollante, for instance, um, or uh, King of the Monsters or what have you, you know, any of these movies, some of these movies are more divisive than others. I think they're all divisive. If you give it another, if you give it enough chance, you know, But on top of that, um, the notion that when that someone says something negative about a Godzilla film, that means that it's on them or that it's their fault or that they're unproductive or they're this or they're that. And you do all, and people do all these labels. And that's also a difficult thing because, and also what gets me even more though, is when someone says something critical of a Godzilla movie and people just lose it. And, and they're like, you're not, you're a bad person because you're being, you know, uh, critical and critical means negative, which critical does not always mean negative. That is not always negative. Um, there are, there are different types of criticism and, uh, but, but like singling them out and saying, well, you're not being productive to the discussion or whatever. Oh, that's just rubbish. <laughs> what? Um and and you say, you know, you didn't like this or that in a Godzilla movie, then all of a sudden you're the problem? Well, I don't think so. I think everyone has their dislikes and likes, and it's the internet. It's it's Twitter. It's YouTube. <laughs> it happens. And I, I don't think, maybe you guys have, I don't know, maybe I'm just in the minority here, but uh, I, I don't think that I've had my feelings hurt and taken it personally because someone criticized a Godzilla movie or any movie that I like. I just, even with, uh, you know, like the, my favorite movie ever, you know, even my favorite group of movies ever, I don't take it personally because that doesn't help me. And also the movie can take it. The movie can take the criticism. It can handle it. And especially if it's somebody on the internet, you know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, Zach is saying when I was seven or eight, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean, it's sort of the same thing with sports and like, I have my favorite athletes or I have my favorite teams. And if someone was like, well, that sucks or whatever, I'm like, okay, I don't <laughs> fine. I don't care. <laughs> and, um, it's ridiculous of me to expect you to agree with me on everything. And um, yeah. And um, yeah. And, and sometimes a movie that you love is, is something that's roundly criticized. And even, even though uh, you may even admit that it's bad yourself, but, and that, and that's a different category kind of is guilty pleasures are a wonderful different thing. And, and uh, for the record, I don't believe that any Godzilla movies to me are guilty pleasure. Uh, I know maybe some people say that about final wars. I, I, I don't think I even say that about final wars. I can unironically like that movie too. Um, but do I take personal offense? No. Um, I mean, how is a critique of a movie going to insult you personally? That seems really dramatic. But Godzilla is not everyone's cup of tea. That's a very, very, very important thing to remember. This genre, the kaiju genre, the tokusatsu genre, 
Toku movies. Uh, not everybody gets them. Not everybody sees that many of them. Uh, not everybody gets on that wavelength and can operate on that wavelength. And I think a lot of people, they watch Godzilla movies so much and they're so used to it and they're so deep in the fandom that they think that, oh, that's not really all that much of a stretch for somebody to, to watch a Godzilla movie and, and like it and understand it. And what's at least the, what needs, I mean, what little of there is that you need to try to understand. I mean, they're easy movies. Uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And I, I think that uh, because everyone, this isn't everyone's cup of tea, I think as a result, it's very important that Godzilla fans have a thick skin because, and to be able to brush off uh, someone who says, oh, those movies are this, that, and the other, just brush it off. Not everybody's going to get it. And I, I don't expect everybody to get it. I mean, everybody's got friends who uh, they have no idea what this stuff is and, and couldn't care less. And I, I'm not going to blame them for that. No, not every, this isn't everybody's taste. Uh, it's a matter of taste and uh, of things that you think are important. Not even with Ultraman. Well, no, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's, although I am rather uninitiated in Ultraman, but uh, I soon I won't be. Hmm. Um, so in other words, in this conversation, you possibly shouldn't blame other people for their opinions about art, or nor should you demonize them as the other by saying that their comments don't contribute to the conversation. Um, and maybe, maybe their attempt to control that conversation is unwelcome. Maybe think about that. Uh, controlling conversation on Twitter is not easy. And I think trying to think that you can control conversation on Twitter is unrealistic. Um, I don't think Twitter is anybody's it's hard to make a safe space for anything on Twitter. I'll say that. And, um, but maybe you should just let people talk and, and go from there. Because if, if you're going to make the unreasonable request that everybody say positive things about Godzilla movies, one, you're going to have a boring, disingenuous conversation that doesn't really work because there's some kind of thought police telling you, well, maybe your criticism doesn't contribute to the conversation. It's like, what, what are you doing anyway? Um, but that's, that, that's the way it goes. And the same for people who say that you can't fully enjoy a movie unless you know all of the historical, uh, cultural significance or whatever. Um, no, that's not what the point of Kaiju vision is, nor has it ever been. Kaiju vision is there for you. If you want to know it, it isn't required nor do I think that that is required that you know these things when you're watching the films, because I think that's unrealistic too. But I, I think that the only thing you need in order to require, in order to, I'm sorry, the only thing you need in order to like and, and give your opinion on a movie is the source material, which is the movie itself. You don't need to know about all these other things. It, I think it helps. It can. I mean, it depends on what kind of a viewer you are. It depends on what kind of a listener you are. And um, 
I'm not going to say that you have to know uh, all. Uh, in, I'm not going to say that in order to enjoy Space Amoeba, for instance, that you need to know about how the story alludes and, uh, and, and various things in the movie symbolize communism. I'm, how, how am I going to expect you to know about that? And also, how am I going to tell you that, oh, you need to know that in order to like the movie or whatever? No, that, uh, no. Um, but that's, that's another thing. But along with people in the fandom community who try to regulate people's opinion in the name of promoting conversation, there are all those who try to regulate what information gets through to a fandom. And this is commonly referred to as gatekeeping. When someone has a new opinion uh, or a different perspective that can be viewed uh, as a threat and as a challenge to the status quo. Um, and this sort of happened recently regarding my opinions on uh, Shin Godzilla. I sort of got told, uh, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, actually, I went to best international school in the country. I, I know a little bit about nationalism. I know a little bit about the uh, topics and uh, I don't need to have written a book about it. Uh, and I don't need to have gone to Japan in order to understand it. Uh, and I think that if you challenge a status quo with a new opinion, uh, sometimes their objective is to hide this information and to tell that person that they're wrong and that doesn't help. Uh, I, I think recently I was told that I, I was referred to as a populist uh, when, they, when they saw my opinions regarding nationalism and Shin Godzilla. And uh, frankly, I think that's nothing but negative elitism. Um, and, and of course, not only is it in the Godzilla community that this is a problem, uh, it's in every fan community, you know? And there are also people who aspire to become gatekeepers too. There's sort of like a different tier under them, you know, and it's like the aspirational, aspirational gatekeepers or gatekeeper wannabes, if you want to use that term. And I also think that gatekeeping has a disparate impact on minorities in fandoms, women, non-Caucasians, LGBTQIA plus individuals. Why? Because they often look at things from a different perspective and have different viewpoints to offer. And so when you're trying to squelch those opinions and suppress those opinions, you end up having a disparate impact. The effect of it is that you have an impact on those kind of people. But it's not because they intended to, because disparate impact does not involve uh, intent. Disparate impact, disparate impact involves the outcome the outcomes of what that practice is. So on the face of it, it's not discriminatory. But if you look at the impact, that's what I'm talking about. And I did a poll on Twitter just today about that because this question that I was asked by a viewer, and it made me think again about all these things. Um, but uh, conversations sometimes on uh, social media involving Godzilla. How shall I say this? Sometimes they're really cringy and difficult to read. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where sometimes someone says, you know, well, 
yeah, that movie's not great, but it's okay. And the, the best responses were not best, but you know, the most interesting responses are, well, what is it about it that makes you hate it? Why do you hate it so much? Uh, they didn't say that. They didn't say that. They just said it's not great. Well, that's their opinion. And it's just, but, but uh, exchanges like this on Twitter, they, it's, they make me want to react to things like, like Gordon Ramsay reacts to food where, you know, he's sitting with a group of people that know who he is and he's in disguise in that latest show that he's done. And then he, you know, takes a, a taste of the food and he's like, God, that's, it's like, God, that's terrible, isn't it? And that's, that's how I reacted. And I guess the best way to answer somebody who gets in your face and says, why do you hate something so much when you didn't, I guess the best answer would be, well, I, I, I don't like it because you get in my face and challenge me and get all upset about it. Maybe that's why I don't like it, you know? And then there are uh, movies that cause reactions like this because they're problematic themselves because the material is problematic. And it's not just because people get a nerve it's because the movie gives them a nerve. And in a lot of ways, fandoms turn people off. They do the fanaticism. It, it sucks the enjoyment right out of the experience, doesn't it? Uh, the regulation of the conversation, the regulation of what open-minded newcomers are allowed to say, the toxic online presence. Uh, they hurt people in the fandom that they profess to love so much, you know, the fandom and the material that they profess to love so much. And it's, it's not acting in the best interest of the people that they, you know, in the interest when in fact the only interest could possibly be themselves. And I think that that's, these, these topics are important and I, I usually don't, opine on on things regarding the fandom f fandom talk you know um but it's the you can't help but notice these things and gatekeeping is a feature of every fandom and but but for godzilla especially with so many movies so many different movies that are so wildly different from each other you're going to end up with a diverse audience with diverse opinions and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i i don't expect to just have everybody give me all kinds of notice but it's also very telling when someone says something new and they're considered a uh, threat very interesting and um just just like the whole dividing the fandom up and stuff into camps or whatever i i don't really find much validity in that i think it's a it's oversimplification um just like a fandom itself is arguably an oversimplification um I mean, Kaiju Vision is one podcast that helped to try to turn around things regarding the opinions on All Monsters Attack, the, the movie that people love to make stuff about on social media so much. Poor movie. <laughs> poor, poor movie, right? Um, do I watch All Monsters Attack all the time? No, I don't know if it's really one of those ones that you would, but at least my age, but at the same time, am I going to, to 
dislike it because it's cool or whatever. No, not really. I mean, it's almost at the point now where in the, uh, the like in like the podcasting community and in some areas of social media and the fandom, it's almost cool to like it, you know, where it's, uh, but I understand what's going on in, in all monsters attack and the episodes really good. I'm so proud of that episode. And, the Godzilla movies are so are not so complex that you have to listen to someone tell you what to think. They simply voice their opinion. And you don't need to travel to Japan in, in order to be able to talk about Godzilla. I mean, what? And and if someone doesn't like, and like I said, if someone doesn't like Shin Godzilla or whatever, I don't care. It's just like every other Godzilla movie, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, however, have people who I've shown it to who aren't in the fandom, when I show them Shin Godzilla, do they like it and do they respond positively? Absolutely, yes, they do. That's cool. I love that. Um, and I love reading Godzilla movies, re reviews of them. Um, and wow, because when I read the reviews for King of the Monsters, <laughs> um, I, had a, I had a fun time. I did not comment negative comments to them. I didn't say, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. I, I think it's enlightening to read reviews from people who aren't in the Godzilla fandom and who just are calling the shots because they like movies and they know movies. And most of the people who responded and reviewed and, and, and were critical of the movie, they know movies. They don't necessarily know Godzilla movies, but they know all movies. And that's, that's an important distinction to make. So I love reading these reviews and it's, it's, it's refreshing. It's refreshing to see these viewpoints unless they're being just, unfair unless they're being jerks you know of course but I, most of them weren't most of them were they they were totally taken out of their element they were totally surprised by what they saw and they uh sometimes didn't understand what the heck was going on um is that bad no i don't think so but i, I think that some of the most i think some of the funniest reviews of king of the monsters were from people who weren't in the godzilla fandom and who just called what they saw on the screen I think that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, Zach, you're saying most people don't like any Godzilla movies. Oh, yes, that's very true. And uh, th what are you going to do about it? It's, it's like, uh, I just, w one of the things I did under quarantine was I rewatched every episode of the Sopranos and, and they use the phrase, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it's a rhetorical question. What are you going to do? Um, so there's that. And before I move on to the next question, because this was, I took kind of a little segue talking about this one question and talking about my feelings on it, but, um, Kaiju Vision has many missions and it's more about, it's more of a mission podcast than it is, uh, about a personality or about any of that stuff. It's more about ideas and, um, revealing the political aspects of these movies is so interesting to me. And it's not 
every and again just like the movies themselves that isn't everybody's cup of tea but gosh there's so much to look at there's so much that tells more about what these are if you look at it through the lens of a of a japanese person especially which that's i love doing that but uh this podcast has also always been about increasing the awareness of japan and about strengthening the relationship between the United States and Japan, militarily, politically, culturally, socially, everything, all of the above. Let's do next. Let's do another question. I love these questions, by the way. These are uh, these are not easy, and I love not easy questions. I love looking at things that I don't have to just say. Well, my friend's favorite color is this. You know, sometimes YouTube questions can get really down to their basest elements. Uh, hello. Um, welcome, Jane. Nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Now that we've warmed up, I'm going to do the next question here. Oh, this is the Get the one that's previous one uh okay there we go the next question is how did ishiro honda escape being indicted as a war criminal for his role in running a comfort woman camp i decided to answer this question because it involves war crimes and because it involves the history of the war and history in general and kaiju vision has a proven track record at being able to take on difficult issues and difficult questions and be able to handle them appropriately. There were about 5,000 people who were tried and convicted uh, for war crimes, but it never got down to Ishiro Honda. Uh, the Tokyo Tribunal did not go as predicted for the United States uh, and you can look at episode four about that. Oh, okay, Jane is da uh, Daniel Demand's mom. Hi, great, good to talk to you. And uh, say hi to Dan Daniel for me because uh, he's done some incredible work on this as a guest on this show. He's been awesome, so welcome. Um, so yeah, the Tokyo Tribunal didn't go well for the United States, and so they kind of let off. On, uh, on going further down with the arrests and the prosecution and the imprisonments, but they did, we did get 5,000 of them. And uh, it was the most egregious ones usually. Uh, there is the instance of the uh, scientist at unit 731, which was the uh, chemical and biological weapons unit. They were of course let go after they uh, gave the United States the materials and, and the secrets from that uh, unit and they were let off. And uh, I believe that, you have to, I have to might check on this, but I don't believe MacArthur even, no, it wasn't MacArthur that didn't know. MacArthur did know. It was the tribunal judges who didn't know that Unit 731 was let go. They didn't know about it at the time. Uh, and when they found out, they were not pleased about it. But getting back to this, technically, for being in a command role at a comfort women camp, uh, 
Ishiro Honda is technically a Class C war criminal, meaning crimes against humanity. Uh, but now that I've answered this question, I'm going to go into some more detail and why I think the, the Honda biography uh, by Rifle and Godachevsky sort of sugarcoats that part of Ishiro Honda's life. I read through that part of the book again after I was asked this question. Uh, and the book does address this, and I found the language to be rather uh, soft. Um, oh, welcome, Faye. How do you feel about the responses to the Godzilla fandom gatekeeping tweet? Well, um, I think it was predictable. Uh, they, I think they, instead of reacting to what was actually printed there, I think they reacted to what they wanted to hear and what they wanted to see, which that is something that a lot of people do on social media. I'm probably guilty of it myself. Who knows? But I, you know, it, it's something that that happens. Um, but getting back to this uh, topic, though, from here's what the here's what the Honda biography says about Ishiro Honda. Uh, and, and during that time in the war, it says, quote, from 1940 to 1941, Honda was assigned to help manage a comfort station, a euphemism for the hundreds of brothels the Imperial Army established in China and the occupied territories, unquote. Okay. So stop right there. Um, assigned to help manage. Okay. Well, he was in a command role in this camp, first of all. Uh, and also manage is a bit of a funny word for a, for a, comfort women camp it's, it's sort of like it's i don't know I, I don't think they're trying to actively uh sugarcoat this maybe they were i don't know but it manage it kind of denotes walmart mcdonald's you manage a mcdonald's you manage a walmart but i don't know it's kind of a funny role i would have said commanded was in a command role I would have said that more. Um, oh yeah, and and and, uh, and Faye too. Uh, I think you just yes, you did just jump in right after I talked about uh, diversity and the fandom and uh, all that stuff. You 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 literally just missed it. Um, so darn. But uh, it will be up when the live is up. And uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, to definitely check that out, though. I, I did spend about uh, spend about 15, 15 minutes or so on it, maybe. But yeah, I, I did cover that. And uh, but uh, now you're saying, does it face saying, does it matter that Honda spoke out about what we saw in the 50s? Yep, just about to get to that. I wrote it down. Uh, so going back to the book, though, the book reads, at, quote, as the Roman Empire had done in its far flung conquests. Japan provided its soldiers with prostitutes purposely to curb sexual assaults on civilians, which were widespread, unquote. Okay. I kind of don't care about what the Roman Empire did and didn't do. That was a very long time ago, and they were operating in an entirely different world than the one that was operating during World War II. I don't know if, I don't know why the heck that's even mentioned. I don't believe it's necessary to cite, um, also, prostitutes, I don't know that that's exactly the correct word to, to uh, lead into this topic when you're discussing it, guys, because 
a lot of these women were kidnapped. They were led into this and they were forced into sexual slavery. I would have said kidnapping victims, uh, sexual slaves. Uh, what we're really talking about, right? What's it referred to now? Human trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that, that, uh, that that's a, a bit of a inaccuracy. I don't, I mean, they say later that the women were lured in with the promise of ordinary jobs and then were forced into slavery. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you say prostitutes at the outset, it's kind of like, oh, like we think of prostitutes now who are in Reno or whatever. And that is not the case. Um, Zach is saying the issue so far has been uh, more with the with rifle biographies, sanitation. And uh, yeah, that, that is it. And, and uh, Faye is saying most comfort women were kidnapped or forced into from South Korea. Yes. Uh, yes, that is correct. Yeah. And, and yes, they weren't always, South, they weren't always uh, uh, South Korean. They were sometimes uh, Chinese. They were uh, sometimes Filipino, like you said there. Um, they, and it was, they, they weren't picky. They weren't picky about it. Let's just say that. Um, they then cite the article written by Honda in the 1960s, where he said that he didn't want to do this, obviously, and that he counseled women once a week when they would come to him, uh, when he signed their health documents, and uh, they would tell him things. Um, for some reason, him telling them, I don't want to be here either, wasn't much of a consolation to them. Just throwing that out there. But that wasn't his job. His job wasn't just signing the paperwork and listening to them when they say things. That's not it. Um, his job was to make sure that the women didn't escape and they continued getting raped up to 80 times a day or more. That's what his job was. He also may have participated in the recruiting, quote unquote, AKA kidnapping, when there weren't any volunteers available, you know, quote unquote volunteers. Um, so him writing about how he listened to their stories and, uh, and told them that he doesn't want to be there that, and sent them back to being raped, you know, that, that doesn't make me think very differently. Of course he didn't want to be there. He, that's well documented. I mean, there's nobody saying he did. Uh, however, that is the Nuremberg defense, what I, I was doing, what I was told. Um, it is also possible that he wrote this essay in the 60s because that is when people started to find out about what, about what he did and what he had to take part in. And notice I said what he had to take part in, not what he chose to because he was drafted, you know. Um, but from the discussions that I've had regarding this issue, I don't know that it's, I, I know that it's a difficult topic for the Godzilla fandom. I know this isn't brought up very often and it is not frequently addressed. Um, the comfort women are not an issue that is frequently 
mentioned. However, recently uh, it has more often been interested. And I think that's an, another reason why I took the question. I would also point out that the brotherhood of man concept, which is so celebrated in especially the Showa movies, but also throughout the Godzilla series in general, um, that this concept may have not been Ishiro Honda's specific creation, even though he is credited with forming this. However, it is entirely possible that Shinichi Sekizawa was the person behind the Brotherhood of Man principle. Because there is a lot of overlap between what Honda directed and what Sekizawa wrote. So I'll throw that out there as well. But I think that th this is a, a difficult topic, but this is not the first time that Kaiju Vision has talked about a difficult topic. That's for sure. And I'm not afraid of discussing uh, difficult topics on this show. I mean, episode four was about war crimes. I mean, we it was literally the second movie that uh, was covered by the show. Uh, I mean, we did... Uh, King Kong, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and then the first Godzilla movie, and then King of the Monsters, the first King of the Monsters, which um, I've, I did feel a little bit of apprehension about being like, oh my gosh, I'm going to discuss war crimes in the first episode, uh, in practically the first episode of the show, uh, fourth episode. But um, I knew how to talk about it the way that I wanted to, and to try to be very careful about it. Um, to be fair, uh, Gojila, which Honda wrote, uh, that coming together is a part of it. Um, yes, coming together uh, element is absolutely a part of it. Yes, um, I think the, I think by 1964, ten years later, uh, I believe that when the, especially uh, Godzilla, Mothra versus Godzilla, uh, that's a movie where it is. Uh, really big, really big deal. It's put right in front of the audience uh, explicitly. And in that wonderful little, uh, that wonderful little scene in the movie. And um, that was really good. But I think uh, it's, it is possible that, 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 that principle when it was carried on uh, and then sort of, you know, announced as the brotherhood of man concept, I think Sekizawa might have had uh, some influence in that. Um, facing big respect for this, addressing it though, it's definitely shied away from. Yeah. Um, also, she says, also, Mysterians has that element and uh, that had a different writer. Yes. Uh, Kimura was a very interesting individual and reading, reading uh, his reading his stuff was, was interesting and reading about him was interesting. And I sort of wonder if his angle on the brotherhood of man was more because he was a member of the Japanese communist party and he was looking at it in a, uh, from a socialist perspective, an, inter an international socialist perspective, which is uh, equally interesting. And uh, I, I'm not making a value judgment uh, either way between how they're bringing it up, how anybody's bringing it up. Um, because they're referring to the same thing, but there are different directions that they're sort of coming at it from. And I think that uh, Kimura was definitely 
very opinionated politically. And he, um, and I think maybe that brotherhood of man concept could have been coming from him uh, as a, uh, as a communist. But it's, uh, again, that's a, uh, that's a little bit of conjecture on my part. Who knows? Uh, but I, I think it could have been considering how definitely how political he was and how serious he was and how he, you know, he, Alan Smithied himself, you know, uh, later on for the, for the movies that he thought were not deserving uh, of his name uh, because they were, he thought they were silly, which that's his right. Um, Zach is saying Stephen Ed's site that scene as a Honda rewrite for Mothra versus Godzilla. I'm not sure what their source was for that though. Yes. Um, I'm not sure what that source was either. Uh, I do. I have been told uh, though that that could be incorrect and that there's too much weight given to Honda partially because he puts so much weight or every, because the fandom itself puts so much weight on Honda, Honda, Honda. And so it, it, it sort of ended up just getting all uh, conflated into, into this one thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, difficult. Um, Faye is saying, uh, as for Honda with the essay, from my understanding, the magazine was part of a movement. The, the article that he wrote in the magazine was part of a movement to get comfort women acknowledged. Yeah, that's uh, not what I was told, but, uh, yeah, and it was very controversial at the time. Oh yeah, it's, oh God, it still is. Uh, but I don't want to, Faye is saying, I don't want to, apologist or absolve him of anything but uh blue pearl and skin of the south both tackle these topics yeah and and honda in his career without a doubt was a uh, big promoter of human rights and of course he hated having to do what he did uh of course yes and i mean there's this is hardly a um this is hardly a unique phenomenon either, you know, um, uh, it ended up where a lot of people in, you know, because war crimes were institutionalized and formalized and the, the brutality was so formalized in the, the Japanese empire that, um, you definitely had people who performed these things during the war who weren't at the top of the food chain. They weren't people who were ordering this themselves, and uh, they ended up going back into normal life. And, that, and it's just, just the same like people who were uh, American soldiers that they went to the Pacific Theater and they came back and they were civilians again. And, um, and the war affected the people involved in it so terribly bad that their lives were never the same. And I think that especially Takarada, Akira Takarada, when he would talked about his experience in the war, how he saw his brother killed right in front of him. And God, that's awful. But uh, Faye is saying here, and it was very controversial at the time. Oh yeah, I got that. But uh, Zach is saying, I I agree Western fans assigning Honda our tour status is cringing. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing I I talk about sometimes uh, in conversations and, Honda was a, uh, at the end of the day, a company man and his job was directing. Uh, he was not an auteur in the way that 
Alfred Hitchcock was. He wasn't an auteur in the way that uh, Akira Kurosawa was. Um, there, however, you know, he, even though he studied under Kurosawa and worked with Kurosawa, he was not Kurosawa and he was not uh, an auteur. Um, he was in, in these Godzilla movies for the most part, he was, it was a cooperative group that produced this and it was the studio that had them do it. Um, yes, that is pretty cringy. <laughs> I, uh, facing, I think in general, Imperial Japan, uh, gets the clean Wormach defense a lot, but it always, it's always hard knowing how to separate that desire from reality. Yeah. And Germany had to go through that aspect of it too. Um, and the heck in Germany, they're still finding, you know, people who are in their, what, their eighties, uh, nineties, even who, uh, were, were taking part in things and, uh, boy, they got them. Um, as for Honda's auteur stuff is auteur stuff. Is it from Honda being the main writer of Gojila's final draft? Um, it might be that. And then that got conflated into him somehow being an auteur for all of these other successive movies. Yeah. Um, what are you also saying? And uh, Faye is also saying, I would also say though, that his dramas have status blue pearl. Yes. Uh, was written by him exclusively while he was on vacation with Kurosawa for Writer's Creek. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's definitely important to point out. Um, I don't know how familiar everybody is with, uh, with Hitchcock himself. Uh, I've read quite a bit about Kurosawa. I've read more about Hitchcock and there's a lot more out there, of course, about Hitchcock because of how big of an impact he had on the movies that we even watch today. But with him, uh, he would get an idea and, or he would read a book. He'd read a book. He'd, he'd then say, I want to make a movie out of this. And then it would be Hitchcock and then Alma Revel, his wife, and uh, a writer. They'd get a writer. And then often it was the three of them who put together the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. And it wasn't a writer that just did things independently. It was the writer very, you know, like this working together with Hitchcock and uh, very, very often Alma who Alma Revel is not given enough credit for what she did, even though uh, Hitch definitely did. He, he gave her, he gave her credit for things. Um, and they had a fantastic relationship. But um, she, she deserves a heck of a lot of credit, too, in offering her perspective and getting those kinds of things, her, getting her viewpoint and her input in as well. Um, I, I love talking about Hitchcock. You know, I almost made a podcast about Hitchcock. <laughs> but the, yeah, that's it, it. It all kinds of uh, I mean, and one thing that uh, Kurosawa did was he he was a student of Hitchcock. He understood Hitchcock and he knew what was going on there. Um, so important. And uh, Faye saying, yes, that would explain the feminism in Rear Window. Yeah, that would explain the, uh, the feminism that is present in some of, uh, of Hitchcock's work. Although Hitchcock was, pre- he was a pretty liberal guy himself. Uh, I would have loved to have seen uh, 
there are a lot of actresses I would have loved to have seen be in Hitchcock films that weren't, um, especially. Uh, there's there are a few that I can think of that would be just it would have been incredible. Um, I I also want to see Skin of the South, and that was written by Honda. I have not seen that. I need to. Um, but yeah, uh, I think the I think the idea of him being a this big auteur it goes from those movies that Honda did. And then he, and then I think what the fandom did was they kind of ran with it and they were like, Oh, he was an auteur in all these Godzilla movies that he directed. And uh, that's not, that's not the case. Um, And I think that's one thing that, that Kaiju vision did very well from the outset was, and I think David Callot for this too, especially is that Callot mentioned Sekizawa, and he and, and and then I in turn said, hey, this guy needs more recognition and Kimura needs more recognition because these writers had a lot of influence on what ended up being there. Yeah. Dave, David Callett, legend. Absolutely. Great, 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 great book. I think it's one of the best books in all of God, the Godzilla fandom. I also think uh, I also think the bar book uh that isn't as that doesn't get as much credit. I see very few people talking about that book. It's it's a great book, and and when I read it, I was like, wow, this is a really good sort of perspective of an English professor sort of thing. You can tell going on in that in that book that he's definitely an English professor and that he's going from that from that direction, which that is a needed viewpoint uh, in the discussion. But then I looked at that and said, okay, he's making some cultural connections here, but I think I can go at it from a different, unique perspective myself and go at it from international relations, foreign policy, history, et cetera. And that fills in another, it fills in another gap. It fills in another piece of that pie that is so important to, to do. Um, Faye uh, said Hitchcock's such a complicated figure since his reception from other actresses is so mixed and divided. Yes. Uh, that would definitely be, uh, you know, a problem. And that's, that's been talked about more recently. I think, uh, yes, he was a very complicated man. Uh, a lot of phobias. I have a lot of phobias too. I actually May I actually saw some of me in, in Hitchcock and the way he reacted to things and what he saw in things, the things that he was afraid of, his phobias. And uh, I, I, I don't know what, you know, everybody, you know, goes into classifications and everything. I don't know what he was. I don't want to assign labels, but I know that he was definitely a complicated individual. Yeah. Um, Facing it reminds me of people not mentioning Orobuchi or the anime trilogy. Yep, it was much more of a figure for the anime trilogy and the creative mind behind it. Absolutely, um, she says. With films, it always gets complicated when you have writers and directors separate, since both contribute a lot. And that's that's what's hard with a lot of these Godzilla movies itself is is it's hard to call especially because it's so long ago and because there are a few sources, it's hard to call what was Sekizawa and what was Honda in any given production. Yeah, you, could, you could tell, though, with Sekizawa's attitude and with the humor and stuff, I swear that's, 
that's got to be him. But because like, Sano was such a serious man. And, uh, but then when you look at like a Honda directed feature that's written by Kimura, that's like, well, both of these guys are pretty serious. Uh, even though I, I think even Kimura out serious Honda <laughs> because Kimura was like the serious guy. But again, it's, it's, it might be difficult to make that call definitively whether something was Honda or whether it was Kimura. I, I'm thinking of um, maybe some, uh, maybe I was thinking of a tango with that. Although the Kimura's like his imprints all over that movie, but in general, yeah, I mean, it's what's what I'm trying to say. Um, Zach is saying, or when you have two directors, live action and special effects. Yeah. And then, uh, and then also in Japanese productions, because they were, uh, cooperative uh, the parts like the um, the Shea dance right and how that was that was Tsuburaya because we know that was Tsuburaya and you know Honda being Mr. Serious you know he was like I don't like that and Tsuburaya was like mm, whatever it's funny and uh, I think maybe really early on in my fandom experience I was like Oh yeah, that's kind of silly. And then I completely made a 180 and I was like, Oh, I love this. Who does, who doesn't like this? I love it. And I love that. Um, ex uh, facing exactly. Or who wrote what parts of Shin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only thing she's saying, the only thing though, with the comedy in Honda, he did romantic comedies a lot in the late fifties. Yeah. And, there are so many movies that I wish we could see as Americans. I'm thinking especially of the, uh, the college campus, college-related comedies from the uh, 50s and 60s. I would have loved to have seen those. I'll bet they were funny. I'll bet they were probably charming. And uh, I, I really wish we could see more romantic comedies and also the, the campus, college-related, university sort of comedies and movies I, I to that because that would sort of help fill in the gap uh for american audiences yeah um facing i know for anime directors uh have no i know for anime directors have no say it's all the writers who do yeah however i'm not sure if it's because it's tv or if it's all japanese productions um yeah facing have to shout out alan perkins here they're trying to get all these honda films over they have access to them hmm. And have done Blue Pearl and Skin of the South. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's really important work. And there, that reminds me of all of the European movies that are, the, the films are just dying. You know, they're, they're degrading and falling apart and disintegrating, literally. And they're, you know, movies from Italy and France and Germany, places like that. And uh, there's this mad rush to try to save those negatives and to try to to get to get them as soon as possible and as much of them as possible and another another film that's sort of like that like little extra parts of it keep appearing and, and that would be uh frank capper's lost horizon which is a very underestimated film and uh i encourage anybody who has not seen lost horizon oh my god you need to see it it's incredible but yeah it's I, I really applaud people who are doing this work of getting these movies over 
so that we can see them. I'd love to see some college comedies. I'd love to see some of the other stuff that Jun Fukuda did that was non-Godzilla because there's not much around that we can that we can look at. And that's so cool. I love I love those. Dave, love Lost Horizon. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I just love it. And it's it's atypical Frank Capra for sure, because I don't care for some of those Frank Capra movies. Uh, one of my least favorite movies in the whole wide world is It's a Wonderful Life. I uh, can't do it. Mm -mm. Uh, but and, and a lot of his comedies and a lot of his movies, Capra's movies, were Depression era. They were uh, populist for sure. And they were also... Uh, kind of had this eat the rich attitude. It is not a wonderful life. Absolutely. And that, that movie just drove me up a wall, but then, uh, think, but I mean, uh, I, but however, that movie did not make me dislike James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, you know, and, uh, I, I, I love James Stewart because he did, you know, the Hitchcock films that I treasure so much. Uh, and, and as a, as an older actor, he, just hit it out of the park as the everyman and gosh, he, he did so well. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Capra movies in general, uh, stuff like you can't take it with you. It's a wonderful life. Kind of the movies that had like six or seven words in them and they just didn't, they just didn't hit me. But at the same time, if I was living through the depression and uh, I, I had a movie that reflected the eat the rich attitude, well, heck, Maybe I would have resonated. It would have resonated with me more, you know. And that's a little bit what we're going through right now, isn't it? Uh, we've we've had a few people uh, from the celebrity community, whatever, and they have made uh, tone deaf pronouncements about how we're all in this together and stuff. You know, I'm also thinking of Madonna. You know, in her, she's in the bathtub with the soap suds and the rose petals and everything just to the ninth degree and saying how we're all in this together. And it's like, are we, I think some of us are having to take the brunt of this. And I think one thing that uh, a lot of celebrities have kind of gotten here is that some of the newer celebrities include the nameless person you thought of who, who worked at the grocery store that, you didn't even bother knowing who they were, but they were there. And now they're at risk because they're doing the same thing in their job that they practically did before. Only worse, more duties, more being careful, more worry. And I think that uh, the common man has been more of a hero throughout this year than celebrities have. And who was it? Justin Bieber who said that, who effectively said, you know, well, I'm starting to understand what poor people are having to do. Okay. And that kind of stuff just didn't resonate with people. And it made people upset because it's like, no, you really don't know what you're talking about, dude. you just don't have the perspective. And that's, it's important to have that perspective. It's important to thank and, and realize how important people that used to get yelled at often. Well, look at all the videos. Now they get yelled at plenty now by the dreaded K words, but 
I know that that's, it's important to, to have respect and how, how, and the common man this year has gained a lot of respect. And I think that's overdue. So anyway, the next question that I got, the Kaysler. So, and here's the next question. It's a three-parter. It's good though. Um, the, here's the question. The United States was largely credited for rebuilding Japan out of humanitarian concerns after World War II. However, much of this was actually, how much of this was actually due to Japan's role in the Korean War and as an effective strategic staging post for the United States? So it's kind of one of those, uh, is the age old question of who really rebuilt Japan, right? Great question. And I did a, uh, a short uh, private interview with a, uh, uh, a guy from the UK who was doing a research, doing a research project in school on Godzilla. And I, this actually came up, this actually came up uh, when I was speaking to him too. And because when, when you hear Japanese people tell you about the war and who rebuilt Japan, that makes you think more than when it's an American that's telling you that, right? At least he did with me. Um, Faye's saying almost entirely the reason why also to keep him from falling into communism. Yeah. Um, the Mask of the Red Death is what I think of when Gosler, heavy hand. The Mask of the Red Death is what I think of when I hear these celebrities talk nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought of that and I remember reading that story, the ground post story in ninth grade. Yeah. So here's my answer to that question. Yes, it is true that the United States is credited for the humanitarian reasons. How much of it was for using Japan as a, as a strategic post, though? I would say some. The Korean War didn't begin until 1950. So it wasn't until then that we really got that uh, bounce out of using it as a uh, using Japan as a strategic post. That's when things got much more serious. That's when the cold war got a heck of a lot more serious. I mean, 48, it really was too with the Berlin airlift and, and all of that. Uh, where did that go? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Right up here. Uh, yeah. You can see it. Um, I was, I, I actually visited the, Berlin Airlift Museum in Berlin in 1998 on the 50th anniversary of the Berlin Airlift. And they had exhibits as to what kinds of things were dropped out of the planes to those poor people in Berlin who had suffered so much and who are now suffering again because a totalitarian power uh, tried to divide their country and did so for so long. And now that things were coming back. And I remember when I was in Berlin in 1998, that whole city was a construction zone, folks. <laughs> it was one big construction zone coming back from uh, the Cold War. And it was beautiful in a way. Uh, but, and so that, yeah, this is a little souvenir that I got in uh, at the Berlin Airlift Museum commemorating the 50th anniversary. And it has the three flags, France, Britain, and the United States. So, um, in the immediate aftermath of the Japanese surrender, a major concern shared by the U.S. and Japan 
was the Soviet invasion of the Kurile Islands in northern Japan. So we're talking about the most extreme north part of Japan. Um, if the Soviets had reached Hokkaido and taken Hokkaido, which that's where Sapporo is, it's the North Island, uh, that would have turned into the Japanese Soviet Socialist Republic of who knows what they would have called it. Um, and it would have been a communist rival to the, the free Japan. It would have been sort of like a North Japan, South Japan dynamic, which is unthinkable. Uh, and so once Japan surrendered, there was uh, impetus to immediately stop the progress of those Soviet troops coming, trying to come south. Because if they had taken Hokkaido, Hokkaido would have been turned into a military base for the Soviet Union. And they could have then used that in order to launch an invasion of Honshu because it's so close. You know, those islands are so close. And Honshu being the main island, of course, that, that would have very much hurt Japan's security, almost irreparably, really. Um, and Japan surrendered to us, even though it was the Soviet Union's who or Soviet Union who was invading Japan at the time. Uh, they had already started invading. And there's a reason why Japan surrendered to us rather than to the Soviets is because they knew that once the Soviets took that land that they weren't going to get it back probably ever. And as a result, uh, it was very important that as soon as hostilities ended between the United States and Japan, that we immediately get to fixing the Soviet problem. Um, and, and so the, the one reason why Japan surrendered was because of the Soviet Union doing this. Yes, the atomic bombs, that's what we're taught in American school most of the time, right? Is we bombed them into submission and they surrendered at the end. But from the Japanese point of view, it was, oh my gosh, the Soviets are invading, help. We need to fix this now or else we're going to have no country. So that's, that's very important. And this goes back to what you said, Faye, about containing communism. Um, and we knew, our intelligence services knew, that Japan would likely be a, a good ally in the, uh, in the fight against communism. Uh, it was well known that Japanese has been a pretty anti-communist place well before the war and well after it, you know. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and so Japan ended up being a buffer against communism. But in the immediate aftermath of the war also, from 1945 to 1950 especially, the U.S. did a lot of great things, such as rebuilding Japan, giving aid to the Japanese people, economic stabilization and, and advisory, uh, building democratic institutions, strengthening women's rights, and keeping the emperor safe from being prosecuted and and saving the royal you know the imperial family the oldest royal family in the world from becoming extinct possibly you know uh at least extinct as far as leadership you know so uh there is that and i still think that keeping the soviets out of hokkaido might have been the number one gift of the occupation uh to japan just because the occupation of Hokkaido permanently by the Soviets would have been unthinkable. It would have been an unbelievable, unrecoverable loss of security to Japan. 
And so there are many purposes for why the U.S. Uh, helped rebuild Japan and why we gave them uh, our best shot that we could. Um, Faye's saying, worth noting, uh, Hirohito and Emperor Showa was the deciding vote for surrender from what I've heard. Yeah, um, they were uh, very uh, invested in making sure that uh, Emperor Showa was uh, not going to get, you know, tried, convicted, deposed, executed, God forbid, you know, that was what was going through their mind when they surrendered, yes. And it was a subject of the, uh, the surrenders, the surrender talk that occurred between the United States and Japan. Uh, facing anti-communism in Japan is odd. They have one of the biggest communist parties, yet their anti-communism has always been extreme. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. And I know that also the, from what I've understood, the, the communist party has always been the strongest in Kyoto. Um, and, and that's always been sort of like a, sort of like a center. And um, yeah. And yes, the, has have any of you who are in the live stream have you seen Mishima, the movie that was partially produced by George Lucas, um, as well as I believe Spielberg, yeah, um, about uh, Mishima and the the historical figure Mishima, and wow, that is one of the most interesting movies I have ever seen in my entire life. Yes, uh, Mishima was gay. Um, and wow, he was the most, one of the most controversial figures I've ever seen in Japanese history, which that's really saying a lot, but he was also, uh, one of the most interesting personalities I've ever seen in my entire life. Very amazing. Um, very amazing movie too. I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it. It's wonderful. Um, either way you think about him, it's, it's still a very, very interesting movie. Um, so that's the answer to the first part of the question. The next part of the question is, should Article 9 be credited for the economic miracle by freeing up money that would have otherwise been diverted to military spending? Okay. That's interesting. So because Japan merely pays us for the offensive part of the capability, as well as most of the defensive part of capability, um, the economic gain from Article 9 was very substantial. It is one of the many forces in the Japanese economy that helped create the Japanese economic miracle. Definitely not to be discounted. And to follow up, the final part of the question is, what kind of impact did Japanese banking policies and a government-coordinated economic policy have? And that's also a very interesting question. The final part of this question is about economic policy and the relation to the economic miracle. So it wasn't just Article 9. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just one factor. It was a huge number of factors. The main ones, however, um, was the Japanese government helping to facilitate relationships with business, uh, especially big business. They uh, gave assistance in the form of tax breaks, cheap money, cheap financing, cheap money, and uh, guidance as to where to go to make products that sell. So the government would seek out, okay, this is where the demand is. And here's where you should be taking your labor and where you should be concentrating on. Here's, 
maybe not necessarily what exactly you should be making, but this is the field that you need to go into. Here's the kind of stuff that sells. And so it's sort of like moving them and orientating them in the way that they're supposed to go so that they would be successful. In 1949, the U.S. occupation government pegged the Japanese yen at 360 yen to the dollar, as this was part of the Bretton Woods framework that was uh, post-war, that was done post-war. Um, this helped the Japanese become an export-oriented economy, which in many ways it still is. This policy and policies like it at the BOJ, Bank of Japan, helped make Japan's economy skyrocket in growth. So when you add these government policies uh, to Japan's already educated and hardworking workforce, like the salaryman that we know of, and that's another set of movies that I'd love to see more of, which are the salaryman movies, because I believe quite a few of those were comedic. Um, plus the competitive nature of Kiretsu's, which uh, Kiretsu's, that was a, uh, it, it's an, or, it was a, it's a framework in which you have a bank that finances a company that produces a producer and then a trading company that trades the goods. So you have these structures that are set up uh, like this. <clears throat> and in America, that's not, it's not that, it's not that formal, but when you have Kiretsu's that can do this, they increase competitiveness uh, not only within the United States or within Japan, I mean, but they also create competitiveness against international competitors, United States, etc. Um, and the, I, I believe that the, the Japanese, when they finally got their hands into everything and had more control once the occupation was over, I think that it was the Japanese aspiration to not only uh, meet what the, what the American economy was doing at the time, but to, uh, but to try to surpass it. And uh, we could talk about the whole stuff that happened after that, with uh, you know the um, lost decade, the market crash and all that, that's been discussed. Uh, the the real estate price bubble, asset price bubble, um, the, these have all been discussed in Kaiju Vision episodes. Which those uh, that the the related topics in all these episodes, I stand by everything that's in them. They uh, I, I tried very hard to get these get these topics dealt with in a in a good way so yeah that's the answer to that question so so yeah this was uh this is i think a good q a and uh we're actually we're actually at 90 minutes right right on the dot um but i think that these were some great questions that were that were offered and i'm glad that i was able to come on here and and ask them and i, I guess uh at this point, for those of you who are who are still on, um, uh, this has been a really hard year for me. Um, we had a death. I had a death in the family, uh, and uh, a lot of other stuff. So it's it's been tough, and uh, I appreciate y'all hanging on and uh, and keeping. Uh, ever, to keeping everything here uh, with Kaiju Vision and your thoughts and uh, I'm going to uh, keep going at this and I think that hopefully hopefully we're over over the hill with uh, with some of these difficulties this year but you know this year isn't over we're just halfway through it 
now it's june 29th and we can um we can definitely hope that things will go better uh and so yeah i i think that i think that it's been it's been great to to talk about this with you all, with you all i think it's important and um if you didn't see the the parts of the show that were earlier regarding uh diversity in the the fandom due to diversity of the movies and all that uh i and i i do talk about the the poll that i did on on twitter today which that was meant to uh get our point across you know and uh and realize that uh that there is disparate impact in how uh fandoms work and i think it's uh it's important that we notice that uh, i think that's mainly it but i don't i don't really know what can be done to um fix this kind of thing other than don't be discouraged just because you are different does not mean uh that your different opinions don't matter i think that of any fandom and of any uh franchise godzilla should be the most open and at the same time the most thickly skinned because a lot of people godzilla and toku this isn't their thing but you know it isn't everybody's thing and for instance like comics comic book movies marvel and all that stuff i'm not very good at that it's never been really a big thing and with me and you can probably tell and like the the star wars fandom heck it turned me off so much i stopped watching star wars altogether (laughs) but you know try not to let uh fandom stuff ruin what you like and try to just ignore the uh the static that is uh fandom dogma and fan and that uh, the, the narrow definitions that fandoms use um in order to try to i don't know what they're trying to do folks it's a mess <laughs> but i will uh i think i'll end it on this red boom exactly right zach uh i think that uh that is 100 true but now i i think i'll i think i'll get off of here and everyone stay cool uh, i know it's pretty hot here right now and i think that uh Let's hope for a better second half of the year, right? Let's be optimistic and hope that we can get through this. And uh, I am already on for G-Fest 2021. And I'm optimistic about that too. And I hope to see all of you there or hope to see all of you at least viewing what goes on at the convention. I hope that this will all of this that we're going through, I hope that it will be at least very well on the way to being over by then. For some reason, I think it will be, but I'm naturally more optimistic about things than I should be sometimes. And I know that's a little uh, thing that I have sometimes as I look optimistically on things more than I should, but um, all of you have a good evening. And for those of you in Japan, good morning. And uh, I hope that you all have a great rest of your day. And uh, thank you for watching Kaiju Vision Radio. 
connecting the real world and Godzilla. Take care.